This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... The economics of game design. Woodrow Wilson. Why we game. And William Dudley Pelly. We average nine new titles a day. That's over 60 a week. And we've got well over 15,000 RPG titles online right now. Drive through RPG, the one true source for RPGs. The smell of Cheetos blown on the wind and the clatter of dice on the table tell us that we have entered the gaming hut. And here in the gaming hut... The question seems to be how economic factors shape game design. And for that piece of Marxist analysis, I turn you over to uh, our resident Canadian, Robin. Robin? Uh, This is not Marxist analysis. This is red and tooth and claw capitalist analysis coming from the experience of doing a Kickstarter. So as uh, regular listeners will recall, uh, in November, I did a Kickstarter for Hill Folk, my game of dramatic narrative. And through the course of doing the Kickstarter, we learned what sort of groovy additional things people wanted to buy in order to support the project. And so uh, one of the things that we learned is that people were more interested in objects of actual play utility as add-ons or extra benefits for reward tier than they were to things that were just sort of cool and collectible. So the set of dedicated playing cards and the tokens to use for the various uh, uh, counters that you use in the game were more popular, for example, than a set of collector's prints. Now, had we planned in advance, uh, of course, this is a Kickstarter that happened you know, the, the game was already designed when we decided to kickstart it. But what if you were to set out to design a game? Would you then design it to have all sorts of little affordable high-margin tchotchkes that people could buy and use or not use in order to motivate them to participate in the Kickstarter? In other words, will the prevalence of Kickstarter inspire people to start designing things that are built to sort of convince you to buy extra stuff. And certainly it's not new that uh, what goes in a tabletop gaming product is determined by economics and the feasibility of components. Uh, That's an obvious thing in the case of, uh, you know, collectible trading cards, for example, had to be printed on playing card stock with a carbon core in the middle so that they would put it up with the same sort of abuse that Uh, cards would put up with in uh, a poker game or under regular play with a bridge or whatever, when previous cards in previous uh, sets of games didn't necessarily have to stand up to that degree of punishment because you didn't use them so much. Um, Or, for example, uh, earlier in the history of tabletop gaming, there was a vogue for boxed products because it was, at that time, more economical to produce a and I'm looking at them right now in my bookshelf, you know, Troll Pack or Borderlands for RuneQuest or, you know, the famous Chaosium box products, which would be a box and then there'd be a bunch of small booklets in it because at that time the thicker Smythe-sewn big tome book that is now standard was prohibitively expensive. And now 
the economics of that has flipped, and it's very expensive to produce a cardboard box to contain what is essentially a bit of a series of booklets uh, and handouts and stuff, whereas it's now much cheaper to uh, have big, glossy color books produced than it ever was in the past. And so you are seeing books, of course, designed under the assumption that they're going to be big, glossy tomes as opposed to collections of booklets. Yeah, I think that the uh, interesting question is, if you're looking at uh, a, a game space in which the tchotchkes and the quality of the tchotchkes, uh, and by tchotchkes we're talking about play tchotchkes, not, you know, uh, cigarette lighters or, or, or keychains, uh, although the White Wolf cigarette lighters were awesome, I will say that. Um, but the but but the the quality of those are uh, key to play experience. The first thing that pops to my mind is the board game space, right? Where you can, in theory, have individual pewter miniatures for your uh, armies in risk if you wanted to get down to that level of ridiculousness. But in the role-playing space, I'm thinking of the Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay 3rd Edition that tried to bring a lot of best-of-breed board game ideas into the role-playing experience in Woofrup uh, to, I'm not sure, overwhelming acclaim from the buying audience, although as a designer, I found it a really interesting approach. Do you think that the uh, there is some fertility in continuing to blend the board game space and the role-playing space as a as a economics-driven designer? Uh, well, given the uh, following gigantic cop-out, which, assuming that it's done well and not <laughs> done as a way that's just supposed to exploit you, and we can all think of you know, ideas that have come out that have horrified people. For example, the past idea that, well, collectible card games are really big. What if we make people buy collectible cards in order to play role-playing games? Well, of course, that was, you know, rightfully greeted with with uh, shock and horror and dismay because, of course, that's too easily discernible as an attempt by uh, some guy higher up in the organization who maybe doesn't know as much about games to get more money out of people without adding more play value. But if you were to sort of look around at objects that are uh, easily manufactured on a, a you know relatively inexpensive level that you could afford to make them add-ons in a role-playing game, it's an interesting uh, exercise. And you could look at existing uh, game components and, and think, well, I want this to be something that you don't absolutely need to play, but that you want to have because it's cool. Um, so, for example, and, and I just think it's interesting to, as an intellectual exercise, to, to look at what you could, what role-playing games you could use that had different components that we haven't used before because that might inspire a different style of play. So, for example, something that's really cheap to manufacture but would be cool to have would be something that's sort of those cut-out fridge magnets, right? And so the question that we would pose to ourselves as designers is how would we uh, use fridge magnets in play in a way that would be fun and wouldn't seem just sort of cheesy and stupid, but had something that was sort of intrinsic to the game. So, for example, you've got those uh, fridge magnet poetry kits where you take words and you move them around. Well, what if you had a storytelling resolution system where your ability to manipulate words uh, made a difference in play? And what if you had a convenient set of them on uh, your uh, sheet of fridge magnets, and then that could become a tchotchke that could get people to uh, buy up during Kickstarter and be happy about it because what they get is cool and using it in play is fun. For, for example, if, if uh, the 
art of casting a spell depends on uh, what words what words of power you have, and maybe if you're better at it, you get more fridge magnets in your hand of fridge magnets than uh, the other guy does, that kind of thing. I think that um, another thing that we need to sort of think about is that to an extent, uh, uh, tchotchke-driven play is as old, literally, as role-playing, because, of course, uh, Dungeons & Dragons began as a miniatures combat game. And if the years and years of playing games have taught me anything, it is that uh, people love miniatures, although whether or not uh, they're necessary for play apparently turns into a big screaming deal uh, uh, once you get far enough down the road that we've all forgotten chainmail. Um, I think that uh, minis is, is one example of a, of a tchotchke that, again, as the, as the practicality of producing them has, has increased, their utility in a game has, oddly enough, I guess, fallen off a little bit because I, I, don't, I don't get the impression that even though you can have pre-painted plastic miniatures uh, more easily now than you ever could, um, that the game space is necessarily more welcoming to minis than it was back when I was playing AD&D and everyone had their one shapeless lump of lead that they moved around. Well, if you're a, a Pathfinder guy, you certainly, uh, or gal, of course, you certainly want to uh, have uh, minis on the table because where they're positioned matters. There will be, uh, from what I understand, a, a fifth edition module that retains the idea that your uh, miniature's position on the gaming board makes a difference and you can take that or, or leave that. And that goes, of course, to a style of play that as soon as you plunk a miniature on the table, you're saying we're privileging certain parts of the experience, uh, the ability to, you know, tactically decide where you are positionally over perhaps the imaginative part of the experience where you sit in a chair and uh, think of the fight going on in your head. And so, and, and obviously, you know, miniatures is a great example because one of the biggest Kickstarters was the Reaper Kickstarter. Right. And it, they use the, uh, the positive feedback loop that you get when a Kickstarter really takes off to give people more and more uh, stuff. So um, I guess part of the process of if you wanted to sit down and design a new tabletop role-playing game that used uh, cool components that people would be happy to get would be to look at what other cool components exist, as you'd suggest in the, in the, uh, the game space. Because I think, you know, miniatures are uh, pretty well established and that people uh, either uh, like them or don't. And some people want to use them in their gaming and some people uh, don't want to use them in your gaming. And that's useful as a positive example because it shows you that, okay, here's uh, an add-on object that is fun if you like them, but not necessary because you don't want people to feel that they have to spend, you know, 200 bucks on not only a book, but a bunch of physical components in order to have fun playing your game. But you do want to give people who are already really invested in your game the opportunity to get more cool stuff that they're happy to get. So, um, you know, another example might be the transparent cards that are used in Gloom. And you could ask yourself, well, how do I use those as sort of a, a character sheet add-on in a tabletop role-playing game I'm designing to, to do as a Kickstarter? And for example, they could be, you know, different states of your mecha, for example, if you're playing a, a mecha game. And you could... Uh, perhaps even find a way to use that as uh, one possible resolution method. And so the question then becomes how much you're taking inspiration from these components to create something that is cool that stands on its own versus 
how much you're just sort of uh, blatantly uh, trying to uh, take advantage of the way Kickstarter works, because the the pitfalls of that would be, first of all, that you would be regarded as exploiting the audience, uh, and the other possible pitfall is that the whole Kickstarter phenomenon could radically level off or trail off over the length of a long product development cycle, and you could wind up with a game that you've designed to be supported by Kickstarter, and people aren't ponying up on Kickstarter anymore. Or it could just be um, that uh, you exhaust the wallets and the appetites of the alpha gamers who populate uh, Kickstarter. If the nightmare is true that there are only you know 10,000 alpha gamers out there and everyone else is their long-suffering friends... Um, once they've, once they've bought, you know, the fifth or sixth, you know, 90 component, uh, game, they may stop. And then the whole model doesn't fail because Kickstarter has failed, but because there's simply no more space in their, in their junk room or uh, marriage to, to own such magical thing. I, I do want to, before we uh, let this get by, uh, I, I do want to bring up something that all people of goodwill gamer or no gamer love, and that's Legos. And the presumption that you have a house full of Legos is, you know, it's probably better if you have a kid than if you are trying to sneak them past your wife. Not that I have any specific experience in that regard. But um, I think uh, something like Vincent Baker's Mechaton that uses Legos as an explicit, uh, uh, literally game-building mechanic is something that you might want to look at in terms of not just something that you're providing in your Kickstarter, although you could, but also synergy with something that you know you already have on the cheap-ass games model, where uh, uh, James knew you had uh, paper money and pawns from all the terrible games you already owned. He was merely selling you good games to play with them. And uh, Dread, which uses Django, of course, is another huge example of that. Right. And so the the trick with something where you're, you know, if you're trying to use Lego specifically, obviously there are huge manufacturing and legal issues that would prevent you from uh, economically on this hobby gaming scale, you know, producing something that was compatible uh, with Lego. But you could certainly, uh, I think it's just sort of fun as an exercise to think of what sort of cheap little objects would be fun to have in a, in a, a game. For example, uh, you could produce for, uh, you know, a theoretical uh, later lavish edition of Knight's Black Agents, you could have a, a dedicated thumb drive that has, uh, you know, a blood spatter on it and contains the uh, handouts and documents so that you can actually bring that prop into play uh, in the game. And, uh, you know, a really elaborate version of that would be, you know, it's a handout that you put into your computer. And of course, as soon as you stick the uh, Knight's Black Agent's blood spattered USB drive into your laptop, uh, there's an animation that makes it look as if the vampires have taken over your laptop. And then it uh, periodically uh, serves uh, not necessarily as a uh, part of game resolution, but as a super duper handout uh key to the adventure. And that offers, uh, you know, something that is fun to have as a collectible. You know, you might say, well, we're only going to run off X number of these and then you have them. You have something that would be cool to show even to your non-gamer friends, right? That once you play Knight's Black Agents, you can then, uh, you know, just take your blood spattered uh, a USB drive to work and uh, uh, please and horrify your coworkers with it. 
And so uh, I think part of this is just sort of, to my mind, is an exercise in looking at, you know, objects that are that are hanging around your office and asking yourself, like, well, how, how might we use these in a game in a way that would be cool now that we possibly have the financial reach to do things that we because previously if you had produced a blood spattered knight's black agents branded usb uh, drive with uh computer animated uh adventure handouts in it there's no way that you could have sold that through the traditional retail channel because it's too weird an item they can't explain it to people they don't have any place to to store it you could never get stores to order it but if you're presenting it as part of a kickstarter um, people know what it is and they're getting it directly in the question of retail store space doesn't come into play. So, for example, if somebody, you know, showed you a bunch of little wind-up toys that uh, could sort of collide into one another, can what, it, as a game designer, what would that inspire you to do in a, in a game mechanic or in an adventure? Well, if you have uh, wind-up toys, you can use them sort of as um, uh uh, play generating miniatures, uh, obviously, is a standard sort of, you know, you put them out and have them gladiatorially walk into each other. Another way might be that the wind-up guy uh, somehow uh, uh, personifies the, the workings of fate. He could be the, the, the story resolution system where you, you set him down and he walks across the adventure track and you change out the adventure track for adventure. And, you know, his random walk would um, maybe... Uh, you'd, you'd have a larger area that would be, you know, you go to the tavern and are safe, and a smaller area would be you go to the witch's castle and are eaten by ogres or, or have to fight ogres or whatever it would be. That the, the little uh, mechanical guy serves as sort of a a, a, a representation of impersonal fate that rules the DM just like it rules the other players. I mean, you could also um, uh, use a little uh, wind-up dude uh, to be a... Um, more specific representation of the character. Maybe that um, if you've got each player has their own little wind-up dude, and then whenever there's any sort of uh, question as to which player is going to come out on top, maybe not in a combat, but in a social situation or something else, they unleash them onto the onto the com onto the social board or onto the other sort of board, and whichever one winds up in the most auspicious position is is going to dominate the the, the play for the next scene or for the next storyline. I can see of a lot of ways of of letting um, letting those sorts of uh, those those sorts of questions be handled by some even external to the DM mechanic, and, and that I, I think that would add a lot of spice to a to a game design. Anything that's self willed uh, to move, uh, and then the the art of the game designer would be to continuously supply mats on which the little wind up dot guys could walk. And another sort of hybrid idea of taking something that you already probably own plus uh, some cool item that could be manufactured through a Kickstarter would be uh, for a game like Ashen Stars that has space combat, you could devise a space combat that uses a crokinole board to decide each sally and hit, and you could then uh, create little crokinole pucks with the different uh, starship designs on them, for example. So uh, if you look at it as a creative opportunity, as a way to take physical objects and make them part of the tabletop role-playing experience, I think that you could come up with, you know, new cool things along the lines of uh, Dread and the other games that you've mentioned, and it can be a fun design opportunity as well as a way to help uh, convince people to fund these projects and feel that they've, you know, gotten extra value out of having done so. Yeah, or imagine a role-playing game 
that uh, uses as its fundamental either story engine or conflict engine Mancala instead of Dice. And uh, I think uh, we will leave future imaginings of that uh, nature to the uh, audience. And uh, I think we've uh, covered this subject well here in the Gaming Hut, and it's time to move into a much-anticipated hut. And that hut is the history hut. Uh, ever since the inception of this podcast, we have promised a uh, final definitive throwdown in which Ken takes on the historical legacy of Woodrow Wilson, who I believe you would characterize as America's worst president. Is that a fair characterization of your view? I, I think that uh, certainly um, uh, that it is a, a defensible characterization of my view. I, I, there is a great deal to be said for presidents who surely by inanition allow disaster to flow onto them, which would be most of the presidents since Zachary Taylor and before Lincoln. Uh, but uh, if you add into it the active making of everything worse, it is going to be very hard to top Woodrow Wilson's record. So uh, perhaps you might want to uh, unveil the uh, series of particulars in your case against uh, Woodrow Wilson, and I will attempt, having done a modicum of research, to... Uh, speak up in a devil's advocate sort of vein. Okay. Well, um, I guess the fundamental uh, concern with Woodrow Wilson that, that sort of drives all of them is that he uh, began as a uh, historian and college professor who believed, uh, as, a, as his interpretation of progressive thought, that the Constitution was not the framework by which America should be governed, but as, was an obstacle to be got around. He uh, sort of, as an intellectual matter, created the living or evolving constitution in that great era of misapplying Darwin to things. He um, saw the natural rights uh, that uh, embodied in the constitution as obstacles to uh, sensible administration. He was the first president to openly criticize the constitution, uh, calling it political witchcraft. Uh, he generally... Uh, you know, began by violating the intent as well as the letter of his oath of office, which is, you know, something that not even Nixon began doing. Um, he had to be worked into it over a term and a half. And, and how did he do that? Well, he, he did it by believing that the Constitution should not be protected or defended. I mean, he believed that the Constitution should be um, altered and got around and evaded. And that, you know, regardless of whether you think it should be, you know, done so, you probably shouldn't be running for president on the basis that you're going to protect and defend the Constitution of the United States. He believed that the, um, uh, the, the guarantee of powers to the people, that the guarantee of natural rights to the citizenry, interfered with the technocratic administration of the country, which certainly um, is the sort of thing that, that crops up a great deal in specifically uh, European criticisms of the United States, that our uh, democracy is too slow and fumbling compared to their parliamentary systems that uh, there are too many checks and balances in it, that the states have too much power. All of these criticisms that we hear are criticisms that, you know, may or may not be valid coming from political scientists, but are perhaps uh, inappropriate coming from the president of the United States. And since he now, made now, them... Now, inherent in the idea that the Constitution has been amended multiple times is the idea that uh, the Constitution is something that you can add to, that you can presumably uh, and add to things that, that remove other things in it, and that's 
presumably not uh, an issue or original to Wilson. No, no. The, the notion of amendment is within the Constitution itself. The Constitution provides a constitutional process for amendment. And even those presidents who have exceeded the specific constitutional writ, presidents like Jefferson when he bought the uh, Louisiana Purchase or Lincoln when he fought the Civil War, did so on the DL and without uh, calling into question the Constitution and, and in both cases saw their decisions uh, ratified overwhelmingly at uh, the uh, ballot box. And so therefore were acting within the principles of the Constitution when they were engaging in their extra-constitutional machinations. Wilson specifically set himself in opposition to the Constitution from day one, from the inauguration. And since he was elected uh, with a minority of, uh, the, uh, of, the, of, the, of the popular vote, thanks to Teddy Roosevelt's chowder-headed uh, independent run, um, he had no such mandate that even Jefferson and Lincoln had in their initial uh, elections, much less um, going forward. Of course, Lincoln also was elected uh, with a minority, but uh, his hand was somewhat forced by the immediate secession of the states that had voted against him. Now, any student of uh, drama judges people not by what they say, but what they do. So what uh, active measures did he take that, in, uh, uh, that violated the Constitution? Well, the specific active measures that he took that violated the Constitution were such things as his activities uh, during World War I, which uh, I remind uh, the listeners that he campaigned in 1916, winning the squeaker of a re-election that he did on the slogan, he kept us out of war, and then immediately plunged us into, without even uh, uh, having bothered to prepare the country to fight a overseas war. Um, and then in the prosecution of that war, uh, threw tens of thousands of people into jail, forced through the Espionage and Sedition Acts of 1917 and 1918, shut down labor unions that disagreed with him, uh, had his agents smash journalists' uh, type and presses. He engaged in activity at least as deleterious to uh, the freedom of the press as any activity being carried out by the central powers against whom he was ostensibly supporting democracy, and then uh, finished up with the Palmer Raids, which rounded up some 30,000 uh, primarily anarchists and socialists and managed to deport about 500 of them before a uh, judge in Boston, I think it was, uh, pointed out that the Palmer Raids were proceeding <laughs> quite literally anti-constitutionally. And that, uh, in the course also of setting up the, uh, the, the Creel Committee, which encouraged sort of constant private censorship of anti-war uh, speech and anti-war activity. He, 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 he put the full force and uh, imprimatur of the government uh, behind um, things such as uh, uh, banning the teaching of language in German schools, banning the publication of German newspapers, uh, ban and then the kind of ridiculous notion, you know, changing sauerkraut to liberty cabbage, um, banning the playing of Beethoven. Uh, these were things that were done by local governments, but they were done with the full support, the open uh, full-throated support of uh, his uh, uh, quasi-public, quasi-private uh, Committee on Public Information. Again, try, because the Constitution gives the government no such powers, he uh, tried as his best to work around it. And the, um, uh, the, the, the sort of the litany of, of repression, the draft in World War I, was hugely uh, uh, unpopular and, again, um, sparked race riots uh, in the North, uh, and riots amongst uh, Irish and German Americans who <laughs> saw, perhaps quite rightly, that they, there was no point in America going to war to hold the British Empire's hand. 
Um, he had a he had a, a, a phenomenally uh, restrictive domestic policy during the war that is sort of the outgrowth of his notion that uh, progressive governance required a war mentality on the part of the government, that everything should be sacrificed for the immediate end, whether that end be uh, the, the um, uh, changing of America's uh, uh, farm uh, subsidy laws, which was merely uh, a honest but eventually terrible mistake because it created the whole notion of government-created low-interest mortgages uh, for political as opposed to uh, any uh, other purpose that eventually culminated in the latest crash, all the way up to such things as uh, jailing Eugene Debs for uh, you know, daring to ask workers to oppose a war to support international capitalism. Um, and that's the great thing about Woodrow Wilson is that he can unite contemporary liberals and conservatives in disliking him because from whatever your uh, personal point of view is, there's a catalog of things that uh, Wilson did that you uh, dislike. And uh, it's easy enough to sort of look back and think, oh, well, he was a progressive. He was a, you know, I, I sort of, he must be the guy I have to identify with and defend, but he was uh, actually sort of a, uh, a universal offender in today's uh, political terms. Yeah, he's, um, I mean, one of the things that makes you the, uh, the worst president in America is that any American who cares about politics can look at what Woodrow Wilson did. And unless they, you know, agree with him that the Constitution exists to be overthrown and got around, they, they have to deprecate his actions. And uh, the ends of his actions, while in many cases may or may not be defensible, uh, the, certainly the means of his actions are contemptible. And in many cases, the ends of his actions are also contemptible, such as his, uh, his race policy, which was to resegregate the, the civil service, to drive uh, blacks out of government employment, to um, uh, connive with uh, uh, the Jim Crow authorities in the South, uh, and to basically turn America as close as he could back to uh, the democratic policies of the pre-Civil War. He, you know, could not actually abandon the Thirteenth Amendment, but he, um, uh, <laughs> but he certainly had no time, either personally or politically, for African Americans. And how did he uh, justify this, or did he? He, he justified it basically by saying that um, uh, I, I believe that his his sort of political justification is that black people's agitation for rights interferes with the smooth operation of the government. Therefore, they shouldn't agitate for their rights. Uh, this goes back to his time as president of Princeton, where he uh, didn't want white students uh, to uh, riot or object to blacks admitted to Princeton, so he just never admitted any blacks to Princeton. Problem solved. Right. So his justification was basically, well, I'm a racist. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I, he was a racist, certainly. I don't know that he ever specifically engaged in arguments such as black people being fundamentally inferior um, uh, uh, shouldn't get civil rights, but he certainly never acted in a way that someone who didn't think that would act. Right. He, he was uh, functionally, if not uh, um, verbally, uh, racist. Well, he was. He was. He was absolutely functionally a racist. There is no question of that. Uh, I don't. I, I can't look into his heart, and I'm not going to read Woodrow Wilson's diaries anytime this side of the apocalypse. But uh, for example, he is a historian who uh, wrote down that the Ku Klux Klan was an outgrowth of Reconstruction, which is just historically not true. The Ku Klux Klan predates Reconstruction. It may be argued to be a historical outgrowth of 
say, uh, the defeat in war or the demobilization of the Confederate army, but you cannot blame Reconstruction for the Ku Klux Klan. And when you start going to that level of meretricious argument to bolster a racist uh, belief, it, you sort of have to believe that, that, that Wilson was a racist. Now, as far as his entry into World War I is concerned, are, would you argue that uh, he should not have entered World War I, or merely that the way that he entered it did enormous damage to the Constitution? I would, I would argue that, well, the way he, technically the way that he entered it did no particular damage to the Constitution because he did, in fact, you know, get congressional approval before committing troops overseas, which is not something that every president has done. But he um, uh, certainly, in his conduct of the war, violated the Constitution four ways from Sunday. I think that there can be arguments made in either uh, in either case that entry into World War One is not the concrete moral clarity that, say, fighting the Cold War or opposing Nazism was. Uh, I think that it is, on the other hand, not quite the uh, adventure of imperial uh, hubris uh, that, say, the Spanish-American War was. I think um, you can you can certainly look at World War One and say is America's national security interest really affected by whether or not the British Empire uh, stops being a paying concern thirty five years early? I I don't really, but again, that's that's historical hindsight. At the time, the Kaiser certainly did look scary, and he uh, certainly had no great fondness for our traditional allies in the world, such that they were. But again. Uh, you, when you look at it over the whole portrait of Wilson's foreign policy, which is of empty bluster and beating up on uh, weaker uh, foes, such as his interventions in Haiti and in Veracruz in Mexico, uh, I think you have to look and, at Woodrow Wilson's specific incentive as much more about sort of self-arrogance, self-aggrandizement and... Uh, arrogance in innate in his position as president as opposed to a clear-eyed look at what America's national interest was. And admittedly, there was a hugely effective British propaganda movement in America that he did nothing to counter that uh, was trying to get us into World War I because they, being no dummies, realized that someone needed to pay for this foolishness. Now, uh, Woodrow Wilson's biographer, John Milton Cooper Jr., very conveniently in his uh, introduction to the book, uh, lays out the charges usually made against Wilson and then rebuts them in a section that might be called, Robin, read this section so you don't have to read this whole 500-page book because <laughs> it's only a f segment of a free podcast. Um, and uh, he makes a number of points in uh, uh, Wilson's favor, uh, which uh, I imagine you do not feel outweigh his uh, uh many defects, but uh, he gets points for opposing prohibition. I guess you would agree with him on that one. Yeah, um, it, he, he he didn't do it really effectively, obviously, but he was suffering from a stroke at the time, so I, I don't really uh, give him uh, marks one way or the other on prohibition. Right, so the, the stroke uh, is a big part of his story and sort of uh, prefigures um, the way that uh, uh, Reagan... Uh, was uh, perhaps more indisposed than we thought at the time near the end of his second term. So tell us a bit about uh, the stroke and what that meant for who was really in charge. Well, again, I, I, I don't want to make this a, a physical animadversion against the president. I mean, you know, Wilson is not to be held responsible for the fact that he has a stroke. It's, it's literally a bolt from the blue. It's not like he was, you know, out there um, uh, eating fatty foods and, um, uh, and, and drinking arsenic or something. He, he just... Uh, 
had a um he just had a, a bad medical emergency um probably as a result of the spanish flu which was of course caused by his stupid war um he uh went on a public speaking tour to try and um sort of rally support for his idiotic notion of the League of Nations, and under that strain, he had his stroke, but I don't think strokes necessarily uh, are caused by, you know, riding around on a train and talking nonsense, or else the country would have been littered with stroke victims in 1919. So, should he have had the, did he have the wherewithal, and should he have had the wherewithal to to step aside at that point? I, I think that at some point, it would have been... I mean, again, I'm not a neurologist. I don't know to what extent stroke victims are self-aware of their stroking outness. But again, the 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 arrogance and greed for power that that marks his whole uh, personality implies that if he had thought that he probably thought um, uh, Woodrow Wilson with a stroke is a better president than Vice President Marshall, you know, with all with with both working lobes would be. And again, I know nothing about Thomas R. Marshall. For all I know, Wilson would be right about that. But he um, uh, he basically uh, allowed his chief of staff uh, to run the White House and his uh, wife, uh, Edith Wilson, um, <laughs> to, to run the country. And that, uh, whatever else you may say about it, is extra-constitutional <laughs> in, in every sense. Um, now... Uh among the achievements that uh, Cooper lists for him is that the uh, Federal Reserve was introduced uh, uh, during uh, Wilson's uh, tenure. Is that a point in his favor? I, I think the Federal Reserve, um, to, to paraphrase Chow and Lai, it's too soon to tell. Certainly before, <laughs> before 2008, the Federal Reserve looked like a much better idea than it maybe looks now. Um, the notion that you get all of the big banks in America to sort of cooperate in uh, propping up the government's credit is not immediately unsound, and given that the actual Federal Reserve Act was denounced vituperatively by both William Jennings Bryan and by uh, the uh, New York Bank interests in the Republican Party, is a sign that it was at least a, uh, a, a compromise between unworkable extremes. But I think that the Federal Reserve, again, is, uh, for all that, you know, some sort of central banking mechanism is probably required if a country is going to wind up running 10% of the global economy or more. Uh, I, I think that the way in which it has gone about its business since uh, 1913 is at the very least open to constitutional question. And in, uh, and I believe that uh, he could certainly have provided for a greater degree of government oversight, uh, and by which I mean, of course, the oversight of elected uh, uh, officials of the government, um, as opposed to the sort of quasi-independent body that, that was set up and that was the sort of bellwether of the progressive notion that if you co-opt the great men of society all onto the same side, what is called Fordism when it's uh, driven uh, by the corporations as opposed to the government, but it's the same basic principle. Right, and it reflects his uh, deep suspicion of democracy. Right, yeah. It's, and again, I mean, it, it, the Federal Reserve... Uh, didn't prevent the the Great Depression <laughs> by any stretch of the imagination, but it was sort of um, you know new and getting its sea legs. It handled the uh, the transition of the United States economy off the gold standard, and then the transition of the world economy off the dollar standard fairly well, I think. Again, not being an uh, econometric historian, but just looking back on it, you know, there was no great horrible catastrophe 
uh, of, of the sort that you might have expected in either the 40s or the 70s um, that, that would have driven that. So, I don't know. I mean, the, the Federal Reserve, you know, you, I, I, I would say you could leave that open as, as maybe a yes, maybe a no. Now, speaking of things that nobody likes but we maybe kind of need, uh, income tax came in under Wilson. Uh, you can't have your uh, modern industrial democracy without uh, income tax, as much as we might like that to be the case. Uh, do you give them points for that? Well, uh, I think that the income tax, certainly in the way that it was um, uh, handled, again, it's constitutional. We had a constitutional amendment that there would be, that you'd be allowed to have an income tax. I don't have any real questions with the process. I don't like the income tax any better than anyone else. And certainly the way that our tax structure works now it is um, uh, it is apparent that the income tax is perhaps not the ideal way to do things. That perhaps some sort of uh, expansion of the tariff uh, or an internal excise tax along the notion of your VI, of the VAT was probably a better way to to run an uh, economy that you want to grow. But I think that the income tax, as it was uh, as it was created, was constitutional. I think that you know back in the day. When they were having the, the, the arguments over the uh, enablement of the income tax, I remember that someone said that there should be a 3% cap on the income tax in the text of the amendment. And that someone else said, well, if you put it that, the government will just raise the income tax to 3%. And you're, and you're, <laughs> and you're going to bankrupt everyone in the country. So don't leave that in and they won't think of it. And, you know, I, I look back on those, on those times with the same sort of fond love that I look at uh, my cat now as something that simply doesn't understand how the outside world works at all. Um, the, the income tax, you know, I'm not, I'm not a super fan of it. I think that you could de design a tax structure, contrary to your argument, for a modern industrial democracy that would not require the income tax. And certainly the income tax, by taking power out of the hands of the states and putting it into the hands of the federal government, is in a, in a lot of ways count countering our constitutional understanding uh, uh, certainly the constitutional understanding of the original framers, and even perhaps the constitutional understanding of the people who passed the income tax. So I, th I think there's a lot uh, to be said against the income tax that maybe Professor Cooper has not taken on board. Right. And, and there's certainly, I think everybody that has a VAT or a GST also has an income tax, and the questions of how you balance all those things are too exciting for this podcast. Mm -hmm. um, now, while he was uh, busting... Uh, uh, unions left and right. Uh, child labor law came in uh, for the first time under Wilson, as did an eight-hour workday. Um, again, do you uh, does that mitigate his uh, his record any? Um, I'm not sure that it necessarily uh, does. Uh, obviously, one is against child labor, and one is in favor of at most an eight-hour workday, uh, if if one is a writer anyway. The um, the child labor law, I will point out, was uh, struck down by the courts, and uh, it had to wait another 20 years to come back in again. Uh, the uh, eight-hour workday obviously had been an agit uh, something uh, subject of agitation since uh, the Haymarket riots, at least in the 1880s. Um, I'm not necessarily sure that you can point to Wilson as the guy who shepherded those brave things through Congress, given that it had, the Congress had a Democratic majority when both of those were being passed. I'm fairly sure that a non-racist, non-anti-constitutional president could have gotten you those. Um, I think that giving Wilson credit for the child labor law is something uh, akin to giving 
Well, I, I, I don't have a, a precise example, but it, it, it's a legislative initiative that was passed uh, by Congress and that Wilson did not oppose. So I guess he didn't oppose child labor. If that's the hill Professor Cooper wants to die on, uh, didn't oppose child labor law, then that's good for him. But it's uh, I, I don't know that it's necessarily, you know, goes one way or the other to the broader argument against Wilson. So uh, uh, Cooper also describes Wilson as a cautious uh, Burkean. Uh, which I guess we'll have to save for a segment called Ken Laughs uh, Hysterically for 15 Minutes. <laughs> yes. So uh, as we close this segment, uh, do you, are there any more uh, charges against uh, Wilson that you would like to advance in uh, favor of your argument of his being the, uh, uh, if not the worst president in history, the uh, repository of 20th century horribleness? Um, I think that, in general, every time you look at anything wrong, you can trace it back, as I've said before, to Woodrow Wilson. So, for example, the uh, American uh, pseudo-regulated, uh, pseudo-corporate media structure is driven by uh, Wilson's initial uh, radio uh, uh, legislation, policy that he uh, pushed for, basically, to enable censorship during World War I. Um, so, everything that's wrong with the FCC and the... Uh, uh, the, 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 the means of bandwidth allocation in America is, is sort of down on him. Uh, he was a, uh, he was the first president since Thomas Jefferson to do the State of the Union address in person, as opposed to delivering it by messenger to Congress. Once again, indicating a sort of, uh, that he was the seminal, one of the seminal figures at the birth of the imperial presidency, which is not something that, uh, thoughtful constitutional scholars approve of. And later responsible for the preemption of much uh, programming. As well as being responsible for the preemption of programming. Uh, let's see. I, I, I don't know that there are, you know, one, again, it's, it's like, besides the, the, the corruption, the lying, and the, and, and the uh, connivance at burglary, what's wrong with, uh, what's wrong with Nixon type questions? Um, I, I think that uh, if you look at Wilson's approach to, even his approach to things like labor law, where uh, you you can sort of make arguments one way or the other. His approach throughout it is to pick and choose uh, unions, right? So he brings um, uh, he brings favored unions into the circle when he passes the Clayton Antitrust Act, and he drives uh, the IWW and other unions out of the circle. So again, setting this this sort of precedent for for crony government uh, that. Uh, you know, when in theory, the the sole virtue of progressivism is that it avoids that kind of thing. But of course, as the, the you know a moment's thought implies, that uh, increasing government power does not decrease government corruption, rather the opposite. So take heart, people who identify as progressives, uh, you do not, in fact, uh, bear the uh, stain of uh, Woodrow Wilson upon you, for he uh, was uh, not a progressive as you understand it. Or perhaps he was, and your understanding of progressivism uh, requires some some thought. Right, because the term is now it's, has been transmuted into something that means something very different than it used to. Well, in in some cases and for some progressives, absolutely. Well, I uh, feel another uh, segment spontaneously breaking out, so we must nip it in the butt in order to move on to our next segment.
it's time once again to ask Ken and Robin. So let's ask Ken and Robin. Ben Riggs asks Ken and Robin, why do you think people game? On the face of it, a saner race would judge all forms of gaming madness. Adults pretending to be drow shamans? Moving plastic pieces across a strip of cardboard and proclaiming that they have conquered Irkutsk? So, uh, Robin, why do you think people game? Well, I think gaming is an outgrowth of the instinct to play. And playing is how uh, we, when we are first born, and how animals, when they are first born, learn the skills that they need to navigate the world. And one of the primary skills that we as Homo sapiens have learned to navigate the world is our intellect, uh, which is filtered through a source of story. And so by playing uh, the sorts of games that uh, Ben references, role-playing games and board games and so forth, that we are drawing on a deep well of instinct that trains us to uh, hone our intellects, our uh, sense of uh, spatial relationships and mathematics, uh, as well as our uh, what you might say the uh, set of instincts that relates to the humanities, our ability to uh, understand and control our sense of the world through narrative, so that we are uh, not doing something that is uh, weird or should be uh, insane, according to uh, an outside human observer, but is in fact goes to the core of what it is to be human and how to survive uh, in our environment. Now, one might argue that an over-interest in games is now a an evolutionary negative in that uh, it might induce you to uh, sit around the table and, and eat too many cheesies. Uh, but uh, overall, that really it, it comes out of the way that our, uh, our brains, our consciousness are designed to engage the world. And uh, for uh, those of us who have particularly an interest in abstraction and have not lost our sense of play, the world of gaming offers us a way to keep our uh, our minds focused, keep them sharper. And I would not be you know surprised at all to uh, learn that people who game uh, keep uh, their uh, their memories sharper, are able to take on new experiences. So it may even be a sort of a a bulwark against uh, the inevitable decline of the brain as one ages. I, I guess to um, counterpoint your uh, eminently uh, sensible, practical, uh, Darwinian approach to uh, gaming, I would uh, add the insight of the great Dutch uh, cultural historian Johan Huizinga, whose book Homo Ludens argues that play is the sort of, uh, I, I don't want to say, not just the nursery garden, but the pattern setter, the place from which human culture naturally must emerge, that uh, play is primary to uh, how culture, which is to say everything outside uh, the sort of, you know, uh, hunting game and identifying berries type stuff that, that you were talking about, Robin, that everything else that makes us human comes out of play, that, uh, you know, everything from uh, war to art to language to uh, um, religion to philosophy to art is all uh, bears within itself the the marks and the outgrowths of of play and play activity and gaming as a sort of focused play or a self evident play or a self aware play is to art or to philosophy or to war 
uh, again, if you look at it, it is a model of those things. It is an ex- exercise in those things. It is a spec- means of, of considering those things at a remove or at a uh, different psychological or, uh, or, or social approach. And in, it, in itself is a, is a valuable human activity. And, and that would argue that tabletop role-playing is sort of a cauldron where we take all of these disparate things that we learn to experience first through play and take into the real world, that it creates a cauldron in which we take it back into an imaginary world. So that if play creates culture, tabletop role-playing is a type of play in which you design a culture uh, often, or you play at war, or your characters get together and create art so that, uh, you know, if you want to get grandiose, tabletop role-playing is sort of a form of uber play that brings everything uh, back together and brings it all to the same table and brings people with different orientations toward that uh, into a collaboration so that the guy who is really interested in math and building things sits next to the uh, person who is really interested in uh, getting inside a a character and understanding their motivations and sits next to the uh, gal who really enjoys uh, hitting things with their axe. Yeah. Um, I think that certainly you can look at tabletop role play as um, sort of the the, the feijoada or the um, uh, cassoulet of culture in that it takes all these disparate bits and it, it blends them up into something that is reminiscent of all those other things, but is its own tasty, wonderful thing to do. And admittedly, like uh, cassoulet, overindulgence in it will make you fat and torpid. But that mm, is feijoada. The, that that is the price one must pay, I think, to be on the cutting cutting edge of uh, sort of not even recombat uh, you know re. Uh, cycled culture, but I would say recombinant culture, right? That role play specifically, role playing as as we do it, but th- with all of its sort of uh, you know uh, tendrils from uh, active uh, uh, immersive reading to theater to all the other sorts of things, are ways of um, bringing those elements of culture that began as play back together to replay them literally and see if there's some other approach we can take. Uh, and I, you know, I'm not one of those people that believes that art generally has a gigantic impact on uh, the, you know, the, the the quotidian details one way or the other of your life. But certainly that artistic inspiration can then make people think of in other ways and of other things, you know, all the way down to the sort of, you know, Star Trek gave us the flip phone because people said, I want a communicator too. And if we haven't finished congratulating ourselves for our, our hobby... Uh, there's also another thing that role-playing does. It reverses the trend of where myth-making and narrative have been going uh, throughout the 20th century, which is to become increasingly corporatized and increasingly a top-down corporate storyteller to mass consumer uh, model. And it take you know, our mythology now is, you know, they're all owned trademarks of various companies, but, even though you are still playing in somebody's IP, usually when you are uh, playing a role-playing game, you are taking the uh, means of narrative production back into your hands and engaging in something that is no longer passive, but is something that is active and something that I think has prepared people for the new 20th century communications, which, uh, you know, and I don't think there's a big uh, coincidence between the fact that both of those things are outgrowths of nerd culture, that the uh, sort of virtual communities 
that we are now seeing emerge on the internet were uh, created uh, to a certain extent by people who were used to creating virtual communities around the tabletop pretending to be orcs. I, I think that um, uh, to sort of put a, a capper on that, I would also argue that uh, it helps to confute the other uh, uh, pernicious trend of, of 20th century art, which is the increasing tendency to treat it as a hieratic thing accessible only to an elite. Uh, that used to be the approach, of course, to art uh, back in the bad times. And then we had the great era of de democratic access to art with the museums and the Carnegie libraries and the working men's libraries in, in every uh, coal mine in Wales. And then almost in reaction to the thought that poor people could read Plato, suddenly reading Plato was no longer the mark of being an intellectual and you had to have the kind of money and leisure that it took to appreciate um, uh, the New York gallery scene or something. And so by breaking down the notion of an educated elite as the interpreter of art, because the play is created literally by the five guys around the table or five guys and gals around the table, uh, democratically and demotically, uh, I think that uh, role-playing games create a notion that art is not created by other people and then interpreted by sages and trickled down to us. What it is, is that art is the natural outgrowth of what we do. And while that can lead to the sort of notion of believing that, you know, your fanfic is just as good as Conan Doyle, which sadly is not uh, a, in, a, a habit restrained only to gamers, but it can also lead to the uh, notion that there is nothing particularly sacred about um, uh, one guy's version of Hamlet that you can't do with orcs and dwarves and magic users. And uh, this has been another segment of Ken and Robin Flatter Their Audience. So finally, we come to uh, what we often find at the end of this podcast, which is a segment of Consulting a Cultist. And this week, I thought that we would enter the wacky, silver-shirted world of the uh, early 20th century uh, screenwriter, fascist, and occultist, William Dudley Pelley. Ken, this is a guy who crosses many huts, from the cinema hut to the history hut to the uh, hut of the consulting occultist. Uh, perhaps you could... Uh, start off with the uh, bare-bones narrative of the life of this weird and interesting figure. Basically, William Dudley Pelly is um, uh, who, I, 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 you know, I have, to get, I have to guess he's who maybe uh, Goebbels or Himmler would have been if they'd been American, um, which is to say crazy, but fortunately harmless. <laughs> <laughs> um, he... He began, uh, as, you, as you intimate, as a writer. He uh, was a foreign correspondent, went, or, went around the world, sort of a, a very, one of those open minds that, as Chesterton put, will let just anything into it. Um, <laughs> he, become, he became a, a screenwriter and then uh, had a near-death experience in 1928 um, uh, in which he met with God and Jesus and the Count de Saint-Germain. He could um, uh, uh, levitate and have out-of-body experiences, uh, and it, in the proper American response to such uh, uh, such an event, built around him a cult of people who were just slightly less crazy than him, or perhaps just slightly more crazy than him, in that they thought that 
William Dudley Pelley had something to say about Jesus or out-of-body experiences. And, and was a person to follow. Yeah, but the coincidence of that uh, William Dudley Pelley moment with the Great Depression meant that, uh, like many other crazy people during the Great Depression, he turned his thought to the immediate fixing of the outside world and the methodology by which he thought to fix it, like with many other crazy occult cranks, was fascism. He became a uh, an enthusiastic fascist. He looked over at Hitler, and remarkably, for someone who apparently didn't know an awful lot about the the weird stew of nonsense that produced uh, the Nazi Party, <laughs> immediately noticed a, a kindred soul. Uh, maybe the uh, Count Saint Germain mentioned it, and uh, founded the Silver Legion, which was a, uh, a legion of anti-Semites who marched around and wore silver shirts. Like the black shirts, but with pizzazz. But with zing, because he was in Hollywood, man. Silver cells. Uh, they went around the country holding rallies and, um, uh, you know, being all fascisty. And uh, then, of course, uh, <laughs> come the war, uh, the federal marshals um, uh, broke his little group up and threw him in prison. Uh, again, uh, in the uh, great tradition established by Woodrow Wilson. Uh, and um, broke him up by... Uh, Basically prosecuting for fraud, uh, you know, saying that since his group was prima facie illegitimate, contributions to it must have been uh, brought about fraudulently, therefore we're going to prosecute you for fraud. The sort of, you know, um, Kafka-esque caucus race approach to uh, suppressing dissent that we do here in America. Bit of corner cutting there. Yeah. And then after the um, uh, after his uh, time in prison, actually, I, I should I skipped ahead, he was actually tossed into prison for sedition. And um, uh, uh, got out and sort of <laughs> went around uh, trying to get his name cleared of the various accusations of fraud. And uh, I suppose became sort of a minor saint to uh, the, the, the post-Pelly uh, American Nazis and American fascists. Although since he was quite so visibly crazy, I think that they, uh, they sort of mention him in, uh, you know, uh, to be sure, paragraphs at the beginning of the book, and then move on rapidly to uh, you know the the, the the fetid machinations of the Jesus. Right, and so he's interesting because you'll find references to him in all sorts of different places because he crossed so many uh, different boundaries. So you will read about him in works of uh, sort of standard history in which he will be portrayed as an actual uh, dangerous figure. Uh, certainly the uh, Hollywood studio heads who uh, once hired him to write silent movies for them were quite alarmed by him because, of course, they were uh, all uh, Jewish and were very uh, conscious of uh, how uh, badly wrong an anti-Semitic campaign could go for them. And given that a, a great number of their uh, of their artists and screenwriters had <laughs> left Germany in 1933 and could provide first-person testimony as to what happens when an occult crank gets any political power whatsoever. Right. And, of course, they didn't see the occult crank part of him. They saw him as uh, being, uh, you know, a legitimately frightening figure who yeah. had a chance of actually uh, swaying people here the way that Hitler did in Germany. Uh, whereas if you're looking at him from an occult lens, uh, he seems uh, sort of more of a uh, a comical figure because his delusions are more foregrounded. Um, he sort of reminds me a bit of a later figure uh, uh, named Ernst Zundel, who in Canada was famously uh, put on trial for denying the Holocaust uh, as uh, on a charge of spreading false news, uh, where it 
would have been much more effective to just point out that he was also a believer in the Nazi hollow earth and that he could have been much more effectively handled through ridicule and not treated as a serious figure and granted the sort of legitimacy of being, being put on trial for his absurd views and that, you know, this is a case where uh, mockery would have sufficed. Yeah, um, William Dudley Pelly is is really one of those people, if I ever <laughs> found myself in the position of a legitimate academic book contract, uh, William Dudley Pelly and um, Elizabeth Clare Prophet and George Hunt Williamson and this little knot of American fascists turns out to have been hugely influential in the New Age movement. Um, all of them sort of read each other and then started their own versions of things uh, that that drove uh, an awful lot of things that you would not immediately looking at them say, well, obviously that's the outs that's the outgrowth of of, of fascism, uh, the UFO movement, um, the specific American takes on theosophy got very much influenced by these guys, uh, beliefs uh, you know in in walk-ins and uh, guardian angels and uh, extraterrestrial communication and um, uh, the, the 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 sort of the uh, weird uh, providential magic of uh, that that sort of is is where astrology and folk religion overlap. All of these things come out of out of Pelly's soulcraft uh, writings and out of uh, the works of his immediate uh, circle of uh, followers and uh, I, I guess you call them apostles. Really, um, he's he's just. He's just a phenomenally interesting figure just in terms of how does this sort of thing, I mean, you know, get sort of uh, propagated and to what extent is it the man? Because Pelly, you know, he's, you know, he was probably fairly uh, uh, charismatic just, you know, given that how many uncharismatic people get a silver legion, but he doesn't seem to have had the sort of personal magnetism and excitement to, to be around them that Aleister Crowley did before the heroin really got him. I mean, you, you don't really understand, was it, was it the man or was it just the fact that he happened to be the man in charge of crazy during the Great Depression? And so therefore, all the iron filings snapped to his magnet. Well, and I guess, I guess that would be the question, right? Is if the, he had this influence because he just wrote a book that people latched onto that if you wanted to read about this stuff, chances are you found his material, and some of it didn't seem so crazy to you if you were prone to believe in this stuff. Uh, and so that it's essentially sort of an, uh, an accident of uh, the way that ideas get propagated, or if in fact there is something inherently uh, fascistic or inherently uh, that connects the uh, paranoid authoritarian inism to a propensity to be interested in occult forces. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that um, uh, there's a philosopher named Eric Vogelin who is very interested in the interplay of Gnosticism and fascism. And I think that there's probably, there's probably a, you know, at least another hut or two to be uh, to, to, to into looking into those kind of connections. And I, I, it may just be that we as, you know, relatively non-crazy, uh, certainly um, uh, uh, civil democratic sorts look on that kind of uh, thought as you know equivalent. You know, we look on something like fascism as sort of the equivalent of believing in pyramid power or UFO contactees. That while it may be you know a great way to get chicks, it's certainly no way to live your life. Right. Well, it is a form of magical thinking. Yeah. To feel that the reason the world is uh, doing you dirty and that you must strike back against it and rectify it is because of this minority group over here right. um, that uh, 
And it's magical thinking to think that you can radically transform the world, that by putting everybody in silver uniforms and marching around, that this will lead to uh, you know, your vision of a perfect world, that you will bring about a utopia. The, the mere belief in the possibility of a utopia as anything other than a metaphor or an abstraction is magical thinking. Yeah. The, um, but again, there's, there's, there's quite a, there's quite a lot of that going around in the thirties and there are, you know, um, th there are counterexamples. I mean, there's, uh, these are guys who, who grew up, uh, during, uh, the, the Russian revolution and saw literally a tiny knot of people overthrow the Russian empire. And without, you know, having done a ton of research into the, uh, the, 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 the fairly ramshackle and god-awful situation that the Romanovs had, had built for themselves, you could be forgiven for looking at that and saying, well, if Lenin and, you know, a handful of other guys who don't even have snappy shirts can do that, and then just, you know, over the, over the, over the hop in Italy, Mussolini and a, and a similarly small knot of guys can do the same thing to admittedly, you know, less impressive effect in Italy. Who knows, right? That the, it's it's less obviously magical thinking, I guess, to us. Those guys have the right idea, but I question their economic system and their design sense. Yeah, I, it, it, there's 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 an awful lot, you know, there's an awful lot of there there, and you know, certainly we would like to hope that the that the great age of occult cranks overthrowing countries is behind us. But as the the, the those you know joyful golden dawn folks in Greece remind us. You know, we're never done with history, and we're certainly never um, uh, showing any demonstrable signs of progress uh, uh, over the over the lifetime of the species, and I would say maybe even not over the lifetime of the Western world. So how much more effective do we need to make a fictional analog of William Dudley Pelly to make him a satisfying villain in an adventure or a work of uh, horror fiction? Well, in, um, uh, in GURPS Alternate Earths, I had him as uh, Charles Lindbergh's running mate in 1940, and that Lindbergh basically had to put Pelly on the ticket because uh, 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 Pelly had a, a, a much stronger um, uh, fundamentalist Christian backing than uh, Charles Lindbergh did. And the, the notion being that after uh, Lindbergh's assassination, Pelly became president in in my uh, in my alternate history. Admittedly, that was fairly early in my alternate history constructing career, and I'm not sure I would buy it now if I read it in someone else's novel. But certainly, to make him an effective horror uh, figure, you only have to believe that the sort of shadowy uh, presences, the the I am entity that uh, that talked to him in his near death experience in 1928. A year that I will point out is the year that Yog Sothoth is tangent to Earth uh, in the Dun in the Dunwich Horror um, is literally a malevolent entity that is providing Pelly with some kind of knowledge or occult power. That these beings that can sort of walk into you, as George Hunt Williamson later uh, uh, wrote about, these sort of uh, uh, you you could call them demons, possessing demons, or they called them angels, which is to my mind even scarier. Um, these uh, the, these walk-in angels can sort of show up and possess you. I think that that's a great metaphor for fascism, that, you know, you seem like normal Germans, and then all of a sudden something has happened, and you're dressing in black and burning books and, and being, uh, you know, beastly to the to the Jews. But that does let humanity off the hook a bit, though. Yeah, but in, in a way, a lot of horror exists to let humanity off the hook because it posits that, you know, the real the real problem with the world is that you know nasty Transylvanian count who's out there messing with it, and if you could just stake him, then Victorian society could return you know to its uh, already ideal state. 
Right. And that's why horror fiction is often uh, at core reassuring, because it tells us that the real monster is someone other than us. Yeah. And I think you can certainly um, uh, you, you can certainly play around with political horror without letting everyone necessarily off the hook. I think that Stephen King uh, doesn't do it particularly effectively because he's making the politics trump the horror in things like Tommyknockers. But I think you can certainly paint a world in which um, uh, the sort of uh, Randall Flagg character is going around, uh, you know, pouring uh, gasoline on... Uh, on the on the fire, much like the devil in the master and margarita, I guess does. Uh, well, uh, once again, I see a fruitful tangent appearing, which must be cruelly extinguished, as we have come to the end of our allotted time. Uh, so I think we can uh, close the books on this uh, silver-shirted individual and uh, wish everyone a uh, happy uh, week, uh, hopefully without fascistic oppression. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Drive Through RPG, Dork Tower, Pro Fantasy Software, and Pelgrane Press. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Leave mints on our pillows at KenAndRobinTalkAboutStuff.com. Or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time, and once again, we will talk about stuff. Stuff.